Welcome to season three of Diary of a Pandemic. Diary of a Pandemic is a personal development podcast that lives at the intersection of two framing truths. The first is that there's a global pandemic happening as we speak. The second is that unconditional freedom is freedom in all conditions. Two transformational coaches, Kianga Ford and Rachel Paz, set out to explore the path to unconditional freedom in the context of living in unprecedented times and meeting whatever the Rona brings with full responsibility for what it wants to teach us about how to get free. A couple of months into this project, George Floyd was murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis on top of a growing list of incidents of police violence against people of color. While our lives were quieted by the context of Corona, this captured our collective attention and led to widespread action around the deeper issues of systemic racism. As a black woman and a white woman, we have different vantage points on this moment. And we think there's a contribution to be made here by taking a deeper look at race through those perspectives. For the next 21 days, we'll be having an unscripted conversation about race, what's present in our lives around it, and what is our work to do to make possible a new conversation that leads to freedom for all. And if you have not joined us here before, I'm Kianga Ford. This is my partner, Rachel Paz. And together we run a project called Becoming Free Humans. And we essentially look at the places that we need to get more free in our thinking or expression in order to be fully expressed in our human potential. So we start with the core belief that unconditional freedom is freedom in all conditions. And the question that we're asking right now is how can we get more free on the subject of race? So we have designed 21 days of conversations and I don't, I don't know if this is not real. Rachel, are you trying to tell me something? You say one second, so we are actually live on the Facebook. I can see me over here on my phone. <laughs> okay. Uh, sorry. I Continue. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what you think, but I can see me talking about this over here on my phone. So I'm pretty sure that we're talking to the other people too. No, I knew that. And I could, um, I was hearing um, you speaking live and the replay because I accidentally got hit a button on my computer and then I couldn't turn off the sound. So I couldn't actually, it doesn't matter. Hi, sorry, I'm technically challenged today. All right. So my point was we are doing 21 days of lives on Facebook around the topic of race leading up to a class that we have that starts a little bit before the 21 days will be over. We have a six week course starting this Saturday, which is really around how to have intimate conversations about race. And by intimate, we don't mean with your romantic partner. We mean how to have these really heart to heart vulnerable conversations that reveal how race is really impacting us in this moment as a way to, as a point of access to the work, our focus will be on doing our work. And that really starts with self-reflection, with self-awareness, with self-revelation, 
And we're really going to give some frames for how to do that in more intimate conversation. So not just in the reading and or the watching or the donating or the the sometimes superheated social media conversations, but in the deeper, quieter, more conversations where we create space to really hear and be heard, what becomes possible there. And we're modeling some of that here in this 21 days of unscripted conversations where we look at what's coming up for us um, around race and what needs our attention, what needs some airing. Um, what's coming up? I think today we're going to talk about what we've been seeing in the area of spiritual leadership and leaders in the zone of personal transformation and how we've seen race handled well and race handled with um, oh shocking levels of lack of understanding or engagement yeah less well if you will. <laughs> Do you want to give us context? Oh, let's see where to begin. Um, trying to think of how much detail I want to share, but uh, there was an incident a few weeks back that uh, both Kianga and I were witness and participant to, I guess, uh, with the, the leader of a spiritual community. Um, that was just really, I think, surprising for the both of us. Um, it, it, the way that it transpired and unfolded was really um, disheartening, uh, I think is the word that I would use. And, um, and it's not really about the incident so much as that it points to kind of this larger phenomenon that we're noticing um, as as we're digging into these conversations about race and sort of who's willing to be in the conversation and who, um, I was gonna say who's not willing to be in the conversation, but that's not actually, the opposite isn't actually the other option. The other option is who's in the conversation but negating that a conversation <laughs> needs to be had. <laughs> um, yeah, so today I think we were just thinking we would wander a little bit in terms of um, what experience, what that particular experience created for both of us and also um, what the series of experiences that we've been witness to since this has all sort of begun unfolding and, and what the bigger takeaways are for us. And I want to say that somehow going back to reflect on this experience, which now I realize happened more like five or six weeks ago than three, mm. right? So it was pretty much right at the beginning of the real like kind of heightened attention after George Floyd's death and the protests really started to ramp up. There was this way that everybody was in this conversation in some way. It was almost unavoidable. And I, I feel like I, I want to mention that because that's not the tone that today has. Right? This topic has gotten much more quiet on the interwebs. Um, sort of the, the second wave of Corona, the resurgence, the spiking. Florida just topped the UK today in number of cases. 
um, has taken the attention back to Corona and away from race. And we sort of suspected that this would happen, um, but for sure we didn't finish the conversation on race. We didn't take this to the next level. We didn't heal the thing. We didn't go all the way through. So we are not the only people, but some of the people that are really gonna take a stand to continue this conversation in this spot. And just, just reflecting on the difference in that moment and this moment um, seems significant, seemed like something that I wanted to um, be able to note and mark. Because in the moment that we had this experience, it was really kind of at the point where it was no longer possible to ignore this conversation. It was, um, I also want to say this is not a call out, right? Like this is a reflection on a situation and a set of situations like it. But it was kind of at the point where people were, leaders of communities were really being taken to task for not speaking directly to the subject of race, mm -hmm. right? Either uh, avoiding it if it was being raised in their communities or just not being proactive and speaking to it. So I think this was a moment, this was kind of um, after the excoriation of Marie Forleo and like her program. And there were a few other leaders that were just kind of getting like raised up, um, not the good raised up, <laughs> like heads on stakes kind of raised up as um, kind of examples of the continuation of unacknowledged uh, racial exclusion, um, violence at the level of participation, right? Like outside of the schema of um, physical violence, but, but sort of, um, what is the word that I wanna use? Like the, the inequity of participation, the inequity of, of voice in spaces like that. So this was around that time and this was a, a sort of general spiritual community in which we've done some deeper work, we've done some one-on-one -on -one sessions. Um, I think we both had a, a pretty high degree of trust in this container, right? And it feels worth noting that the leader of this particular container is not US born. And I find that my conversations with people who feel like minorities in this country who are not US born are really um, just, they have a particular flavor of understanding and understanding in relationship to denial, right? Like understanding in relationship to dismissal. Huh. Maybe I'll let you take it from here. Tell us a little bit more about, I'm just gonna describe what happened, but I had so much to say about the distinction between that moment and this moment um, and kind of some of the basic framing context. I can keep going if you like. You know, it's funny, the, the actual like, um, I, I feel like I might misrepresent the details of that initial sort of thing that kicked it off and, and it feels important to get that right. So if you remember accurately, I'm gonna let you do that. 
I don't even know if it's important to remember it accurately because when you say that, I'm not sure that I do. Essentially, what happened was the topic of race came up in this group, right? And I think that at that point, we were both really assuming generous intent. It had been on enough, on long enough, the heat had been on long enough that I had already grown cautious about which conversations I stepped into. And I really step into conversations with people that I feel like are willing to hear, can hear, and are responding in the way that they're responding because they don't have um, full information or a, a real access to empathetic understanding, right? So not just everybody who is saying something that seems sideways on Facebook, right? But I remember jumping into a conversation that was um, sort of on racial justice and on how we should just all focus on being good people, right? And that was sort of, when that trope was still more alive, it was beginning to die. It's still dying a slow death. Um, And there were some, some social justice educators that came in to really begin to refer resources. And it was clear that some of the other people in the community were feeling very um, triggered by it, really charged, um, not really understanding. And it felt important for the leader of that community to be able to understand and to say things that supported her learning and opening so that all of the people in the container could be supported. So I remember, you know, there are lots of detail, but I remember what I shared was my experience with being a frequent flyer, right? And what it was that I noticed about privilege and how privilege compounds. So I used to essentially live in LA and work in New York. So <laughs> a long commute, right? Is a long commute. It means I spent a lot of time on red eyes. Um, and well, I started doing that when I was in Boston. So I was living in LA essentially and teaching in Boston. I had places in both like apartments in both places or housing in both places, but I spent a lot of time commuting back and forth. And so it would often happen that I would take the red eye overnight from LA and I would arrive in Boston or New York just in time to get to the university and start my teaching day. And I was like executive platinum on American at that point. And so I was obviously in like the first few rows of the plane. My luggage would come out first because it was priority tagged. So, you know, I'm still an art professor. I'm not rolling with like the super deep budget, but I fly enough that I get status. And so I still need to taxi into the city. There's no like super sleek car service <laughs> waiting for me. But when I come off the plane first and I get my bags first, by the time I get to the taxi stand, there is no line. I just keep walking, right? Whereas for the people in coach, by the time they stand through the line and come back with the other, come out with the other people, there's a line that could add another 45 minutes to an hour of wait time between you and getting in the city. 
right? And so I just started to do the math on that. I'd say I was coming into the city for an interview or something that I really needed to be like right on the dot of the time for. And I had that one hour lag. I would actually have to come into the city the night before in order to make up for the distance that that privileged position gave, right? And so it's additional expense to me. It's, it maybe means like leaving behind work the previous day, maybe making less the previous day so that I could get on that flight. You know, I have the luxury of leaving LA at 12 at midnight at 1230. I had a full day to work and then I was on time for my next work day when I arrived on the East Coast. And there was a point, this might seem like a very like sideways story, but there was literally a point where I was dragging my bags out to the curb and I was like, oh, hey, this is how privilege works, right? You don't even see it. You are just structurally so far ahead that you can't really fathom what the people behind you would have to do to catch up to you and have the same experience. Now, obviously, that was a really limited incident, but I was able to really kind of both empathize with the experience of having privilege and also empathize with how people with privilege don't notice they have privilege, right? Because I earned it, right? And, you know, I earned it. I fly here so much. They should take better care of me. But wouldn't you know, I was the only person who looked like me who was in that class of privilege. So it was also a little bit easier to see, right? Mm-hmm. That like that privilege was an expression of other kinds of extant privilege at the same time. Well, I shared this just by way of kind of explaining what privilege was and got shut down in the group, including by the group's facilitator that was basically like, everybody works hard and there's no such thing as privilege. That was a benefit that you earned. Everything is benefits that you earned. And it just went to a real lack of understanding of racial inequity, right? And again, she's not US born. And so to a certain extent, I could understand why it was so vehement, why there was, why there was such an inability to see. But what I never saw was an opening, a willingness to see it from a different place. Um, It was one of the few moments that Rachel kind of came in as backup and was like, hey, (laughs) I'm not sure if you heard this right, (laughs) but this is not about, you know, I won't paraphrase what you said, but it was essentially like, this is not about an earned a frequent flyer status, right? This is kind of about how privilege works in the larger sense. And I don't think you ever even got a reply. Hmm. Right. I got a lot of, from the, from the other people in the group, they were almost exclusively women. I got a lot of, well, I don't have frequent flyer status. I, and like people telling me about like, the ways that they would have had to pay extra to do that to and not being able to kind of extrapolate the metaphor to to see the larger working privilege. Anyway, we both exited that group. 
but not without understanding that that's not an isolated incident. So we have friends that have taken on their own diversity and inclusion coaches with coaching businesses to make sure that they're holding space in a way that is truly inclusive and that they're doing the work on themselves to figure out where their blind spots had been before. We're not suggesting that everybody is already elbow deep in this conversation, that everybody already understands. But there is a, a place of spiritual bypass where one of my reflections about that experience was there's not a way that you understand enough about what I'm experiencing to even hold me in the complexity of spiritual maturation or spiritual development. There's a way that you have to be able to meet me where I am. And if you deny that my experience exists, you can't actually help me grow through it, right? You can't help me understand which parts can be constructively uh, reframed within a spiritual context, within a development context, because you just deny the context entirely. I think for me, one of the things that, like, is it true to say that my feelings were hurt? <laughs> I think so. Like, there was a way that I wanted her to be able to see, hey, you're, you're not actually getting what she's saying. But that, that wasn't exactly like the deal breaker for me. It was the place where I, as a member of her community, somebody that, you know, was in, and we were in, we were in a super intimate relationship, but like, like you said, we had worked together one-on-one, -on -one. like we had rapport, we had a relationship. <laughs> exactly. And so what was really sort of hurtful to me in that process was that she wouldn't even engage in the conversation with me, right? That like, that our relationship actually meant so little to her that like we couldn't talk about it and agree to disagree. Um, and to me, like as, you know, I, I think to me that's just a real demonstration of, um, hmm, Well, what was I? Gonna... <laughs> you know, av avoidance, right? Is is one of our biggest teachers, right? What What are the things that you actually can't be in relationship with? Has a lot to tell you about where you need to do your work, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, it was like, oh, you know, she's in a lot of avoidance here, and I can't be the one to tell her what her work is, right? Like that's that wasn't, that wasn't my place in that moment, but well, there wasn't a lot of willingness, but it, it's interesting to me where certain spiritual leaders are drawing that line between um, avoidance of like, nope, this just isn't a thing. It's not part of like the way I do business. It's not part of my community. It's not part of the thing that I talk about or teach about. So I'm going to just leave it over here um, because that's the more comfortable thing to do, right? It's a very black and white. And the people who are willing to say like, mm, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to find over here, but I'm willing to look and I'm willing to entertain um, all sorts of like, I'm willing to look at the things that I want to avoid in order to see what there is to see. Mm -hmm.
you know, and I would say there was a third path, that path that was um, overly accommodating, mm. right? That kind of, not overly accommodating, that sounds a little too benign because it, it, the impact wasn't benign. Those leaders who kind of abdicated leadership to let people talk, to let people use their fora to speak to people in whatever way they wanted to and to have conversations on whatever topics they wanted to. Um, there was a lot of calling out and correcting. It was just really um, tense, kind of unconstructive. So that was a kind of a third path. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think really the middle path is the path that we are modeling, right? It's not that we already know the answer. It's that we're willing to show up to the conversation. I mean, collectively, we probably spent three or four hours writing messages, right? Just to, by way of trying to explain. And one of the people that I had referred into the group was also in that conversation, sort of trying to give resources and trying to reveal and having people tell, say things like, I don't need another book list, right? And, and not have that directed in any way by the, by the leader. And so I think one of the things that comes out for us is if you are leading people in any capacity, this is work that's not really possible to avoid, right? Like this is, not that this is the reason that you should do it, but this in a really practical way is impacting her bottom line, Mm -hmm. right? is impacting, I mean, I've referred many people into that space and now I'm a little bit like, oh dear, how, how did I do that? But I think that there, I think it also belies the way that these spiritual communities have been able to presume themselves to be neutral because race wasn't addressed. It's really hard to tell where people stood on it because nobody in the field ever really said anything about it at all which is another thing that we're, we're calling out and, and wanting to shift. Um, calling into consideration is maybe a better phrase um, and, and wanting to shift, but this impacted her bottom line. It's impacting her reputation. But more than that, if you're somebody who is leading other people in any way, getting to the heart of what you really think, what's really showing up for you, what's your work to do around race is incredibly important. There's a time when we considered, hey, is this program for leaders, right? Is it for people who have their own communities that they are shepherding and stewarding? We decided it wasn't necessarily limited to that but we have some real clear examples of how if you are in a leadership position like this and you're not doing your work, you are actually doing damage, hmm. right? And it's a different kind of opportunity. How can you really see what, what are you holding? What are you holding in terms of your perceptions? What are you holding in terms of your expectation? What are you holding in terms of um, Oh, relationship? Are you in avoidance? Are you in denial? Are you in overcompensation? Where are you? 
There are all kinds of boundary tools to learn. Talking about overcompensation made me think about boundaries are a really important part of this. All healthy relationships also have boundaries. Mm -hmm. The things that you are willing to talk about, the ways that you are willing to be treated, um, and the kind of abdication of leadership path showed a lack of understanding of how to maintain boundaries in conflict, right? How to, how to maintain boundaries and in intimacy. Yeah. You know, it has me think about um, sort of other examples that I've seen. You know, mm -hmm. and so there's a coach that I know that has a, a, a group, right? Um, she does private coaching and group coaching. And, and she, um, she took a workshop from a diversity and inclusion expert and, and, you know, the following day published all of the things that she was doing to, in her business as a result. Right. And it reminds me of, you know, in the, in the days after George Floyd's death, the number of emails that I got, right. That were like, black lives matter. This is not okay. Here's what you can see in our business. And I'm curious about what you think about the distinction between, okay, so now we've got some principles that like live in a poster on the internet or up on the wall somewhere. And like the, the leaders who are actually doing the work and how, mm -hmm. like, how are you receiving both of them and how are you able to tell the difference? Mm. <laughs> it's a good question. And I was like, I think you know how I feel about this. Um, not on the level of individual coaches, but one of the great falls from grace that happened for me was my very favorite retailer came out with a lot of, I mean, my very favorite retailer um, came out with a list of ways that they are supporting Black Lives Matter only to have their um, employees begin to reveal how many racist practices directly racist practices like racial profiling inside their stores and really derogatory code names and it just kind of had all of these things come out and so i think it becomes really clear um that like the having the list of corporate values of company values isn't the same as doing the work and i think that that's the same at the level of um coaches right people who are not corporate entities but are individuals with very personalized brands it's one thing for your brand to make a statement it's another thing for you to do the kind of work that you've seen rachel up to here right like I mean, I'm, I'm in my work, but I think that like your willingness to show your willingness to demonstrate willingness where you don't know where it's going to go or how it's going to come off, how it's going to make you look is really the deeper work, right? You don't have to be here doing this for everybody to see on Facebook live. But I think that there are a lot of coaches who are only doing the brand steps and not doing this deeper work at all. Mm. What am I really holding? You know, and I do see some, I do see some that are really out there doing the deeper work. We have a mutual friend who just posted um, a little bit earlier about creating new ritual that is not co-opted. Mm. 
right? Creating new ritual that comes from her own European roots and isn't a co-optation of indigenous ritual practices or African ritual or practices. And I just thought, yeah, that's every day, right? Like today she's building an altar and she is trying to figure out how does she get into spiritual practice without appropriating someone else's practice? And what does it just mean to be in relationship to the question? So I see, I do see people out there doing it, but one is not the other. No. Which is... Not the same. Um, and on a personal level, I would say that it's the same. Like you can read the right reading lists and you can watch the right movies and you can, you can be a great donator. But if you don't do the inner work to see how is this thing really affecting you? How does it live in your body and your perceptions, um, in your own avoidance, in your resistance? If you're not willing to commit to that level of excavation, I feel safe in saying this is not a problem that we're going to resolve. It will certainly not be resolved with brand statements. I mean, according to the internet, Sprite is my best friend. Right? Like, not sure I believe that. Coca-Cola company, not, not sure I believe that. But there are a lot of statements being made. There's a lot of play for positioning around this because of the level of visibility. But play for positioning is not the same as doing the work, right? Not even if that just comes down to the fact that you allocated 10% of your earnings this year to support causes like Black Lives Matter or other racial justice programs. It's wonderful, it's essential, and it is not the same as doing your work. Was it harder to hear about your favorite retailer, given that they had come out with a list of things that they were doing or committed to? Yeah, it was. Because I wouldn't be there if they weren't the kind of retailer that um, talks the talk, mm -hmm. right? I wouldn't be there. Like, yeah, don't see me at Hobby Lobby right now, folks. <laughs> I don't right. see a Hobby Lobby ever, A, because I'm not a crafter, but B, mm. <laughs> Yeah, well, we, we did understand that some of that wasn't true, right? They were at some point rumored to have donated to an organization that stood for White Lives Matter, and that, that did not fact check, so I'm not going to continue to spread that. But there's other stuff back there in terms of, like, statements and uh, corporate giving that I'm like, nope. It's not, it's not for me. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I am, I am particular about the retailers that I, that I shop with. There are some things that I want to see in place and, you know, I mean, I'll tell you who it is because there's no reason for me to protect them, but I, I have said more than once that like heaven must be a combination of anthropology and fresh mangoes. Right, like when I get to heaven, these are the things I want to see: super ripe mangoes and anthropology. Um, I have a great love affair. I have read their like marketing statements. I've actually done some like research in the company and who they think their ideal customer is, and I live squarely in their ideal customer. Right, but also 
that brand also clothed me in college before I became an anthropology professional. I was an Urban Outfitters kid. So these people have been clothing me since I was literally 16 and they don't have respect for who I am in the world. I'm not a demographic they want to see in their stores. Of course that bothers me. They're selling, um, they're selling taste. They're selling worldliness. They're selling adventure. They're selling the travel minded, right? They're, they're, they're selling my life, but they don't want to sell it to me. Yuck. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I think one of the things, you know, it's a question you asked me the other day is what do we expect from the people or entities who serve us? Mm-hmm. Right. And it's true that I expect a level of willingness, a level of willingness to really self-reflect on how do my beliefs, actions, and policies, how have they and how do they continue to contribute to racial inequity? Right? It's not, it's when we see very consistently in this moment of the movement that it's not enough to make it something that the other guy is doing, right? I'm love and light over here, just love and light and spirituality. But I don't think that people are actually racially discriminated against. Eh. <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Like that's, that's just, for me, that's really clearly not okay. So I have the expectation that people are doing their work. I also have a lot of patience for what that means and what that looks like not the expectation that everybody comes out with PhD level understanding of um, sort of structural injustice. Mm -hmm. I don't expect that everybody becomes social justice oriented, right? In, In their identity. But I do expect that people begin to really, people and entities really begin to look at their impact. No one is exempt from this moment of self-reflection. Yeah. I mean, the systems couldn't exist if the players in the system were clear in this regard. Mm -hmm. So there's a way that we've been collectively upholding the thing Mm -hmm. in order for us to stop collectively upholding the thing. All the players have to be willing to self-reflect I'm not putting my money behind people who are not doing that. Yeah. I think we have a kid knock on the other side. A kid knock. That's my curfew. (laughs) It's all right. I think we've probably said a lot for you today. We'll see you back here again tomorrow for the next installment of Diary of a Pandemic, 21 Days on Race. If you want to connect with us with your questions, reflections, inquiries about working together, joining us live on the podcast, or really anything else, drop us an email at hello at becomingfreehumans.com or through the messaging function of whatever app you're listening to this on.